Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, I Don't Know What I'm Doing, Failure Tolerant Christians. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July 3rd, 2011. On a flight home from New York a few years ago, I grabbed several magazines that I don't normally read. One article caught my eye from the Harvard Business Review. It was called The Failure Tolerant Leader by Richard Farson and Ralph Kay. The article begins with a quote from IBM's Thomas Watson who said, the fastest way to succeed is to double your failure rate. Farson and Key make some interesting points. Failure is a prerequisite of invention, which requires risk-taking. Failure also provides insights that aren't normally gained from success. It's one thing for leaders to address failure at the abstract level of corporate policies, but quite another to acknowledge failure at the personal level. For most employees, personal failure is an enormous threat that portends embarrassment, shame, and even the loss of your job. Worst of all, the stigma of failure breeds fear. Failure-tolerant leaders move beyond simplistic definitions of success and failure, where the former is always positive and the latter is always negative. There is, in fact, such a thing as successful failure. Good leaders also keep things in perspective, according to the authors. Don Shula, for example, one of the winningest coaches in NFL history, once remarked that he didn't get consumed by losses and didn't get overwhelmed by successes. Failure-tolerant leaders empathize with employees by sharing their own failures and by accepting the mistakes of others. And finally, they place a corporate culture of fierce competition, replace it with a culture of collaboration. The article made me wonder what a failure-tolerant Christian might look like. After all, some of the most significant people in God's story of redemption experienced extraordinary failure. Moses was a murderer, David an adulterer, Peter denied even knowing Jesus, while Paul described himself as the chief among sinners for trying to destroy the church. In this week's epistle from Romans 7:15 to 25, Paul describes a fierce struggle in his deeply divided self. He does things that he hates and fails to do the good. He experiences covetous desires and sinful passions of every sort. Rather than doing the good he desires, he commits the evil he detests. With exasperation, he describes a war within him that makes him a prisoner and confesses I do not understand what I do. Paul's struggle is so intense that some interpreters think that he's describing his pre-conversion life rather than a Christian experience. <coughs> About 15 years ago, I started reading the 4th century monastics 
who fled the corruption of church and society to seek Christ in the solitude of the Egyptian desert. Before I read these desert mothers and fathers, I thought of them as Christian superheroes. But after I read them, I realized that I could not have been more wrong. I love these desert dwellers because they were practitioners of healing, not abstract theoreticians. They sought personal transformation, not theological information. Although the desert monastics strike us as oddballs today, we misunderstand them if we construe their asceticism as a spirituality of superficial techniques. I love the desert monastics most of all for their profound humanity. They modeled what one scholar calls a spirituality of imperfection, in which one is not ashamed or embarrassed to acknowledge and embrace one's brokenness, wounds, darkness, and inner demons. For them, intense struggle is a necessary component of Christian maturity. The Desert Mothers and Fathers tell stories that illuminate Paul's interior struggle. With remarkable candor, brutal realism, unqualified empathy, and very wry humor, they describe how they experienced in the vast nothingness of the desert a cacophony of voices in the interior geography of the human heart. They sought wholeness, but discovered brokenness. In the famous words of St. Anthony the Great, the father of monasticism, they concluded that we should, quote, expect trials until your last breath. Their reports from the front lines of spiritual battle reveal a disarming transparency about human failure and frailty. To take one example, as I reviewed what I underlined in the books by John Cassian, here's a sample of their self-diagnosis. Cassian lived from 360 to 435. He writes about lethargy, sleeplessness, dark dreams, impulsive urges, self-justification, seething emotions, sexual fantasies, pious pretense that masked his virtue self-deception, clerical ambition, and the desire to dominate, crushing despair, confusion, wild mood swings, flattery. And then it gets worse. Cassian also admits, and here I quote, there are also many things that lie hidden in my conscience which are known and manifest to God even though they may be unknown and obscure to me. Cassian gives many examples. Why does a monk who joyfully renounced great wealth later succumb to intense possessiveness over a tiny penknife, needle, or a book? He observed monks giving each other the silent treatment. What provoked a brother's anger at a dull stylus? Or why is it, he asks, and here I quote, that superfluous thoughts insinuate themselves into us so subtly and hiddenly when we do not even want them, and indeed do not even know of them, that it is very difficult not only to cast them out, 
but even to understand them and catch hold of them. Where, in other words, was the off switch for a psyche in overdrive? Paul and the desert monastics encourage us to embrace our struggles and failures rather than to suppress or deny them. That can be difficult when our communities don't allow us to fail in the first place. Or if they do, the price of failure is condemnation rather than consolation. Christians, of course, are famous for throwing failures under the bus. Paul, writing from his own experience, reminds us that we all carry the gospel treasure in fragile vessels and that no one is worthy or adequate to the task. And James writes in James 3.2, We all stumble in many ways. And so in the epistle this week, Paul asks in Romans 7.24, Who will rescue me from this body of death? The gospel for this week, Matthew 11.25-30, points us to Jesus. Come to me, all you are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And now for further reflection, consider the poem by George Herbert. The title is called Affliction Four. George Herbert lived from 1593 to 1633. Broken in pieces all asunder, Lord, hunt me not, a thing forgot. Once a poor creature, now a wonder, a wonder tortured in the space betwixt this world and that of grace. My thoughts are all of case of knives, wounding my heart with scattered smart. As watering pots give flowers their lives, nothing their fury can control, while they do wound and prick my soul. All my attendants are at strife, quitting their place unto my face. Nothing performs the task of life. The elements are let loose to fight, and while I live, try out their right. Oh, help my God, let not their plot kill them and me, and also thee, who art my life. Dissolve the knot as the sun scatters by his light all the rebellions of the night. Then shall those powers which work for grief enter thy pay, and day by day labor thy praise in my relief, with care and courage building me, till I reach heaven, and much more thee. For books this week, we go back to the early 3rd century in a book called The Octavius of Minucius Felix. My copy is translated and introduced by G.W. Clark, and it's number 39 in the Ancient Christian Writers series, New York Newman Press, 1974, 414 pages.
How did Romans view the early Christians? And how did Christians respond? The Roman lawyer Minucius Felix of the early 3rd century gives us one snapshot of this exchange in his philosophical dialogue between two friends. Whether the dialogue is actual history or just literary device is not clear. Minucius Felix serves as a neutral arbiter between two friends, the pagan Cecilius and the Christian Octavius. In the first half of the dialogue, Cecilius presents his pagan criticisms. Since the Christian sect was novel and new and couldn't claim an ancient pedigree, it was automatically suspect. For the most part, he says Christians were unlettered and unlearned, utter bores and yokels, ungraced by any manners or culture. In style and content, their scriptures were crude. They adhered to absurd doctrines like the resurrection of the body and providence. Rumors about their cannibalism, incest, and infanticide were well known. They were antisocial, avoiding the theater and the games, and apolitical, refusing to run for office. The Christians, says Cecilius in a revealing observation, do not understand their civic duty. Octavius, in his response in the second half of the dialogue, barely mentions the Bible, since it would have been rejected out of hand. Nor does he incorporate any Christian doctrine into his argument. He doesn't deny that most Christians were poor and uneducated, nor does he deny that they didn't participate in Roman society. Rather, he does what he knows would appeal to his audience, which is to interact with dozens and dozens of pagan philosophers, poets, and sages. And in the end, Cecilius converts, and Minucius Felix concludes, quote, I was completely lost in profound amazement at the wealth of proofs, examples, and authoritative quotations he had used to illustrate matter easier to feel than to express by parrying spiteful critics with their own weapons, the arms of philosophers. He had shown the truth to be so simple as well as attractive. The dialogue itself is barely 75 pages, inaccessible to non-specialists. Technical experts will enjoy the 300 pages of introductory and end matter by G.W. Clark, Perhaps the most interesting question the treatise provokes is a question of complexity and controversy. To what extent were upper-crust Romans turning to the Christian faith by the late 2nd century? The Octavius, says Clark, quote, forms a valuable literary addition to that historical picture of gradual sophistication of a church starting on that long and indeed never-ending task of coming to terms with its secular milieu. The book is called The Octavius of Minucius Felix from the third century. For film this week, I review Cave of Forgotten Dreams from 2011. 
1994, Jean-Marie Chauvet and two friends stumbled upon a 1,300-foot-long cave in southern France that contained some of the earliest human art ever discovered. The sophisticated images include over 400 animal representations, palm prints, and stencils made of red ochre, black charcoal, and etching into the rock walls. There are also foot and paw prints, smoke stains, and charcoal remains. Radiocarbon dating confirms that the artwork is 30,000 years old. In one case, a more recent painting was superimposed on an original one 5,000 years later. Hundreds of bones and skulls from at least 13 different species litter the floor, but there's not one single human bone. Since the day of their discovery, access to the Chauvet Cave has been strictly controlled and limited to a small group of scientists. So it's a special treat that the filmmaker Werner Herzog gained exclusive access to make this documentary. The 3D technology makes you feel like you could scrape your nose against the wall. There are several instances where Herzog needlessly tries too hard to dramatize his subject matter and veers off topic, but the end result is still a good enough film about a fascinating subject. The title of the film, Cave of Forgotten Dreams, from 2011. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem called The Layers by Stanley Kunitz. Kunitz lived from 1905 to 2006. I have walked through many lives, some of them my own, and I am not who I was, though some principle of being abides from which I struggle not to stray. When I look behind, as I am compelled to look before I can gather strength to proceed on my journey, I see the milestones dwindling toward the horizon and the slow fires trailing from the abandoned campsites over which scavenger angels wheel on heavy wings. Oh, I have made myself a tribe out of my true affections, and my tribe is scattered. How shall the heart be reconciled to its feast of losses? In a rising wind, the manic dust of my friends, those who fell along the way, bitterly stings my face. Yet I turn, I turn, exulting somewhat with my will intact to go wherever I need to go. And every stone on the road precious to me. In my darkest night, when the moon was covered and I roamed through wreckage, a nimbus clouded voice directed me, live in the layers, not on the litter. Though I lack the art to decipher it, no doubt the next chapter in my book of transformations is already written. I am not done with my changes. 
The title of the poem, The Layers, by Stanley Kunitz. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July the 3rd, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.